up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to reach tall buildings in a single bound. This amazing stranger the planet of the Man of Steel. Who are you? A friend. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman, 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 Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Welcome to Superman Forever Radio, episode 49. I am J. David Weeder. I am your mild-mannered host, And this week, we finish out our look at the Black Ring Saga, the final Lex Luthor story of the post-crisis era. But first, an email from Mr. Steve J. Rogers. Steve writes, Hey David, glad to see the show back. Thought I'd hit up the Man of Steel toy line. As I am your age, obviously this came about after I had stopped with having a steady stream of action figures in my toys, save for Kenner starting lineups, and some random stuff that survived a purge known as being given to the kids of a friend of my mother. So sadly, the superpower Superman was part of that purge, and I never got the urge to buy a superhero action figures again until the late 90s, early 2000s, when DC Direct and Marvel Legends started popping up, and so I dabbled a bit into the hobby aspect of it. Kind of had the same run, Steve. Um, Since they were the most comic book brought to 3D world, hard to call inanimate objects to life, no matter how many points of articulation looking figures ever, well, I had to look into getting some of my favorite characters DC Direct Superman from the first Superman series in 2003 might be the best-looking Superman figure of all time, and sadly the only Superman figure I ended up purchasing is I simply ran low on time, space, and money to devote to any sort of action figure hobby. So once again, a Superman figure was set free, this time to one of my, at the time, co-workers' kids, whom I saw one day with a comic book superhero shirt on. Well, that's kind of win, Steve. That's made of win. Hopefully you converted a fan there. Now, that that Superman figure that you're talking about is a gorgeous, gorgeous figure. However, I've bought it three separate times because the thing will fall over and break very easily. Primarily, a big point of of contention for me with that figure is the, the ankle joints. They're the bane of my existence. I mean, even my current version of the figure has a scuff on his nose because he just tips right over. Great looking figure, just not a well built figure. Anyway, that being my short personal history with collecting Superman figures, I still pick up Superman trading cards when released, though there hasn't been a set devoted to the character in quite some time. I enjoyed this bit of time travel back to the crazy 1990s. Say this though, at least the shortness of the Man of Steel line prevented Superman from the same fate as Batman still has today. I mean, in the Movie Masters line, you can get the Christian Bale Batman in figure in various get-ups that clearly never were worn in any of Bale's three movies. Yeah, for the kids, but I really pity Batman completionists when it comes to all the various outfits toy makers have put him in, as well as his movie and animated form over the decades. Yeah, you got different lines there. I mentioned uh, Legends of the Batman, and then they have Legends of the Dark Knight, which is a bigger scale. Night Force Ninjas. Oh, and there's another Batman line out now that's kind of an animated look. So yeah, I don't pity Batman completionists. Steve continues, can you give a top, eh, 10 might be too much, but top five favorite Superman figures ever produced. Glad the show was back, Steve. Steve, I'd be glad to do a top five. I actually had to take a look around here in the layer to figure out, you know, really, how do I rank these? Um, So number five on my list is the DC Direct Showcase Presents Superman. A, it's a straight up Kurt Swan, um, Al Plastino Superman. Looks gorgeous, and you get interchangeable heads that I think some of the more modern collectors may not get. But having read a lot of Silver Age, I find it really great because you have a lion head Superman, ant head Superman, big bulbous head Superman. Great, great figure. Number four, Matt Wagner's Trinity, because it's a bit cartoony. Um, 
not necessarily animated, but sort of he has different proportions. So when it's standing on my shelf, it just stands out at me, and I can't help but look at it. Number three, we have the DC Direct Classic Superman. This is the another Kurt Swan style, uh, but it came with this base that had an American flag, a piece of kryptonite, and a Lois Lane figure. Uh, just a great set, and that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with the Superboy set from the same uh, Silver Age-inspired line. Uh, number two, my superpower Superman. It's pure Jose Garcia Lopez. It's a big piece of my childhood. It was the first Superman figure ever, so it's always going to have a favorite place in my heart. Now, that's kind of beat out barely by my new Frontier Superman figure, which was kind of the start of my current collection. Um, I just love the stocky body. He's sort of, he's meaty, and you have that Fleischer-style S, which won me over immediately. And it happened to come out just as I was reading Tom DeHaven's It's Superman. So I was already in a Golden Age mood, and this figure just hit the right chord at the right time. And every time I see it on my shelf, I just, I smile broadly. So I'm going to put that at number one, just as a personal favorite, not necessarily the, you know, the best, but personal favorite, that one is win for me. So I appreciate you writing in, Steve. Keep on, keep the letters coming. Um, I know it seems like they're, from the time you wrote it to the time this episode came out, seemed like a big delay. But I am recording these well ahead of time to keep up with the weekly schedule. So, keep on writing. I will keep on reading. I always enjoy hearing from you. And with that little business out of the way, I am ready to jump right into the Black Ring Saga. And we'll be kicking that off with Action Comics number 897, released on January 26th of 2011, bearing a March 2011 cover date. The cover by David Finch and Peter Steingor, that name I can't pronounce, Steigerwald, follows the trend of the March-dated DC books of having the lead character or characters cast against a simple white background with their symbol rather than the standard trade dress. Lex stands triumphant with Superman's tattered, burning cape held aloft, and like a lot of the covers from that cover month, I dig it for its simplicity. It's straightforward, it, it doesn't bury the lead, so... But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the Black Ring Part 8, which is within that wonderful cover. This was written by Paul Cornell, with art by Pete Woods, colored by Brad Anderson, lettered by Rob Lay. Will Moss and Matt Idelson provide the edits. And getting into the breakdown, we've been to Antarctica, Uganda, and the afterlife. Now Lex's quest for the Black Spheres takes him someplace really strange. Arkham Asylum. As Lex arrives, Spalding tries to warn him of some findings he's made that a lot of the information Lex found in the isopod was probably planted. Lois blows Spalding off because Lex needs all of his concentration to interrogate his polar opposite, the Joker. The Joker greets Lex with two jelly jars on his table and makes a crack about how the world would be perfect if only he could kill Batman. Lex realizes that Joker is taking a jab at him and decks the clown prince of crime right in the jaw. When Joker and Lex settle down, Joker challenges Lex to riddles to earn the information of how the Black Sphere can fit into a tiny, tiny cell. Joker's riddles reveal that the spheres can actually change size when they need to, and perhaps the sphere was drawn to the Joker's personality, and that what Lex seeks is under one of the two jars. Joker asks Lex to choose, and he picks the wrong one because a tiny magical singing pony prances across the table. So Lex tries a different tactic asking nicely and saying please, and the Joker shows him a small black sphere. Spalding starts to change it, but the Joker stops him and goes on a long, long speech, revealing that he can hear voices from within the sphere, including Lex's conversation from death a few issues back. He can also see a power beyond, a godlike power. The Joker says that he wants Lex and Spalding to make the sphere bigger so he can use it as a gateway. Spalding is hesitant, but Lex allows him to make the sphere bigger, and the Joker rushes in, but... Then the Joker comes right back out, manic, having heard the power tell him what is about to happen, and he decides he is better off in Arkham. He begs Spalding to change the sphere and do it quickly, and as it changes, the Joker warns Lex that unless he makes the wrong decision, he'll crack the biggest joke of all. Spalding finishes changing the sphere and wonders if perhaps the Joker planted the information that Lex was working with. Just then, Spalding is dragged into the sphere, kicking and screaming in pain, and the sphere shrinks right back down to its original small size. Lex returns to the cell, where Joker admits that he was the one who dragged Spalding into the orb. He then puts the sphere into a jar and hands it to Lex, who declares that he now knows what's going on, 
as the Joker laughs hysterically as if he is in on a joke at Lex's expense. Far away from Gotham, in the city of sin, Las Vegas, two casino security guards are in for a shock when they go to investigate the sealed computer core and find the orange lantern, Larflees, hanging out, and he wants to know where to find Lex Luthor. Okay, you had me at Larflees. Well, maybe a little earlier. Um, we get a bit of a continuity nod to Bruce Wayne announcing that he funded Batman, and that... The recent, well, recent at the time, creation of Batman Incorporated, which Lex does not approve of. Uh, the Joker gets a good one in with his, hey, you got a haircut line directed at Lex, as well as beckoning him, him, beckoning Lex near, and then dropping a jazz hands on him. But the Joker doesn't really find it strange that Lois is sprouting guns out of her arms. No matter, because Lex actually punches the Joker and gets a good one in, but the Joker wins that... Sorry, Lex, he got you good with that line. If only I could kill Batman. Totally roped him in. It was awesome. Because Joker is basically mocking Lex's assertion that if he kills Superman, he can save the world. I mean, Joker really dug it in and deep, and we soon find out how he got that info. But we get a clear hint when the tiny magical pony comes marching out. Something Death mentioned in 894, and this really gets Lex and catches him off guard. But let's be honest, Lex has tried reasoning and manipulating his way out of out of and into a lot of scenarios. So now he's trying to reason with the Joker? Who's the crazy one here? Uh, because the Joker, I mean, honestly, the Joker's in full control here. He's almost at Hannibal Lecter level, though I think he states the best allegory. It's a camp version of Blade Runner. Not just with the, the pony reference being a, a reference to the unicorn left at, at the door uh, by Edward James almost character. But the entire question and answer between these two is almost a parody of the Voight Camp test from the movie. Maybe that's why this is my least favorite installment out of the 12 issues we are looking at. It feels like a parody. Not that there hasn't been some ridiculous moments in the story so far, but this felt really watered down. It was trying to paint an eerie Joker. It was aiming for that Hannibal Lecter feel here. It felt like Cornell was going out of his way to look clever. He's trying a bit too overtly to show us the threat that the Black Sphere offers by showing the Joker was freaked out by what was within. Okay, Deathstroke running away may have been campy, but we know he's tough as nails, which is what made it kind of funny and organically funny. But we know that the Joker is crazy as a bag of cats, so seeing something that freaks him out or you know, him hearing voices doesn't ground it in the same way. Because Joker was basically shoehorned to put in two of the main nemeses in one book. However, Joker's killing of Spalding is the saving grace. It is not only sudden and harsh, but it has echoes in the next issue, which of course features Larflees. Who is Larflees, you ask? Well, you might also know him as Agent Orange. He's the lone Orange Lantern, a being of incredibly long life who was kind of a part of a thieves' guild. Now, the guild members stole a box holding the Parallax Entity and found the Orange Lantern of Envy at the same time. The Guardians bartered with the thieves to hand over the box holding Parallax in exchange for the Orange Lantern and the power it wielded. But as part of the deal, Larflees had to stay in the Vega Quadrant. But things never stay hidden, and an accident convinced Larflees that the truce had been broken, and this greedy creature set out on the universe wanting, well, everything. And let's be honest, we are talking about a character. I mentioned he's in a Thieves' Guild, and there's only one Lantern. Um, he pretty much killed all the other contenders for the Lantern. So we're not dealing with somebody who's a cream puff by any means. He's a humorous character, but uh, he has a dangerous side, as we're going to find out in Action Comics number 898, the ninth installment of The Black Ring. It dropped on February 23rd of 2011, bearing a cover by David Finch and Ryan Wynn, which has Luthor battling Larflees in his battle suit. Once again, we have a story written by Paul Cornell with art by Pete Woods, and Lex is preparing to launch the ship we saw a few issues ago into space as Lois walks around Lex Corp, and the name on everybody's lips is Spalding. And then Larflees, the Orange Lantern, shows up, and it seems that Larflees found one of the spheres, but one of his constructs ate the thing. So now he wants to figure out how well, he wants to figure out how the sphere works, and Lex pretends to want to help Larflees, but tries to blast him. The fight doesn't last long before Larflees grabs Mr. Jessup and holds him hostage. 
Lex barely blinks before shooting Mr. Jessup in the head, killing him. While Larflees is distracted, Lex has Lois change the sphere, using it as a gateway like the Joker did to swallow Larflees and his constructs, killing two birds with one stone. And after landing at the spot in Antarctica where we found the first sphere, Larflees decides that what he sees within the sphere is not something he wants, and he takes off. Back with Lex, he and Lois launch for space in the ship, and within Robo-Lois is an internal monologue in which she is fighting against her master, fighting against Brainiac. What? We're going to get into that a little bit later. Um, I'm just going to start off by saying I love me some Larflees. Loves Larflees. He's a character that can straddle the humorous and the dangerous, kind of like... Okay, well, kind of like the Joker. So the question is, why did I like this issue and not the previous issue? Because Larflees appearing is organic to the story. It makes sense, because Lex was prompted to go on his quest after experiencing the power of the Orange Lantern and the one other Orange Lantern showing up. Of course, he wants the sphere. Makes perfect sense. It puts the pieces together. So when Larflees arrives on page 5, he has his whole core with him, and by core I mean a group of humanoid-ish constructs that are actually funny to look at, but these are stolen identities. He bases his constructs on people that he kills and then takes their identities and turns them into pseudo-permanent constructs. He does this because he refuses to share power with anyone. And what does he do when he finds a sphere? He swallows it. One of his constructs, an extension of himself, swallows it, and then he decides to find out what it is and what it does. And that's why I cracked up during the synopsis. He, he hasn't a clue where it, is, where it is, where it came from, but he's going to have it. But Larflees is just uh, window dressing for the issue. He's a means to an end, and that end is Mr. Jessup's end. What a kick in the teeth. Lex just shoots him in the head, which even shocked Larflees. Lex's normal modus operandi is to have somebody else do the dirty work, so all of this nastiness lays underneath the surface. Because, generally speaking, everybody knows that Lex is dangerous, and costing him can cost you, but it doesn't always... It's not always blatant. It's not always in-your-face danger that looms over your head. Because Lex is a guy that will smile at you, shake your hand, wish you the best, and then, well... You saw what happened to the scientist in issue 890. And the post-crisis era is filled with many incidents like this. Um, also, look at the story from Superman Volume 2, Number 9, where Luthor visits the diner, makes an offer to a married waitress to pay her an obscene sum of money to spend some, shall we say, quality time with him in Metropolis. So as she's deciding, he bolts, leaving her to wonder what might have been for the rest of her life. And the, imp the implication is he does this all the time. It's all for the sheer jollies of messing with her little peon mind. That is the Lex Luthor we're used to. My knee-jerk reaction to seeing this was, it's an act that Lex Luthor is out, it's a sign that Lex Luthor is out of control and driven beyond reason by this greed. Uh, but that's not the case. That's actually not the case. That was what I thought at first seeing that act, but... This is actually a Lex that realizes what he has and sees the next step and he knows that in a short amount of time, things like shooting one of his employees in the head simply won't matter. What he will become is beyond the laws of mortals, beyond rules and regulations, beyond perception. Public perception, I should say. Because after all, what started as a quest for the power of the rings has turned into something more. Lex even says it, just a lantern in the ring not enough. The Green Lantern Ring, and by extension Red Lantern Rings, Yellow Lantern Rings, etc., are the most powerful weapons in the universe. Think about it. By wearing one, you can create nearly anything simply by thinking it. Heck, look at Larflees. He created beings out of his power with a ring. Whether it be orange or not, Lex could fulfill his desires. He could invent anything that he envisions. It is limitless, limitless power. And what Lex sees, what Lex has concluded, what he is pursuing, is beyond that. Lex is even learning how to use the spheres as gateways, as weapons, dumping Larflees into Antarctica, which 
Well, in that scene with Larflees in Antarctica, we actually see the body of one of Lex Luthor's cronies from issue 893. And holy crap, I love it. When a well-placed detail is put into a book, just a nod to, yes, we've been here before. And I don't know, I, I like those little details. It makes a big difference for me. And unlike when the Joker peered into the sphere and came back freaked out, I felt like Larflees deciding that there is one thing that he doesn't want really did underscore what we are dealing with. It's something on a scale that we're not even remotely prepared for. Now, it may be a little hypocritical to say I liked Larflees having his reaction right after saying I don't like the Joker's reaction. But as, a, as I said, this is organic, and Larflees is not as expected as the Joker. From the moment that I cracked open 897, I know at one point, I knew at one point the Joker was going to see the power and react. That's natural. That's what we need to see. The Joker issue did serve to show us that what Lex is playing with is an entity, something that the Joker referred to as the power. So now we know Lex is after a power beyond what we know, and that power is attached to some kind of entity. We've known for an issue, Lois, oh, we've known for a few issues actually, that Lois seems to have a plan, that she's working with somebody else, and through Mr. Mind we know that there is another player on the board. Now we know Brainiac has his hand on the on Lois, but how long, how much, and how will that play out? Well, that's what we're going to explore in the last two issues, which we're going to look at right after this podcast promo. And Superman Forever Radio will continue right after this. See you on the other side of the promos. Hey, Johnny, it's been a while. Yeah, it's a good thing we're off our hiatus. Yeah, now we can finally get back to talking about some classic Daredevil issues. What if we threw some current Daredevil in there? You mean the awesome Mark Wade run? Sure, I'd love to talk about that stuff. Awesome. So if any of our listeners want to join us again, or if any listeners want to join us along the way, they can listen to From Yellow to Red, a Daredevil podcast. It's found on iTunes and at fromyellowtored.libsyn.com. Yay! And we are back with the penultimate entry of the Black Ring Saga, Action Comics 899. Now, while the book has a May 2011 cover date, it actually got to the public's hands on March 30th, 2011. Once again, features a cover by David Finch and Wynn, showing Lex Luthor getting punched in the face by Brainiac. Very similar to last issue. Now, this is the redesigned Brainiac that Jeff Johns brought us in the storyline that led into New Krypton. Most Superman fans will know Brainiac. He who originated from the planet Kolu, who had the simple gig of shrinking cities, putting them into bottles. Now, throughout the years, we saw various versions of Brainiac, from a robotic superpowers version to the Brainiac 13 virus, where he was nearly an AI and the early post-crisis when the alien entity took over a circus performer. What Johns did was to take all of those and tie them together, as well as giving Brainiac a more menacing physical appearance. Gone is the green alien in the short shorts, and now we have a bulky character in a sleek bodysuit. The thing that I feel like I should point out comes out of New Krypton. Luthor and Brainiac kind of teamed up, but in the end, Lex was revealed to be a plant invading Brainiac's operation on behalf of the U.S. government and General Sam Lane in exchange for clearing his record clean. Luthor betrayed Brainiac, enlarging one of the cities on Brainiac's skull ship, destroying it, and helping to defeat Brainiac. So there isn't love lost between these two as we open the issue itself. Most of the same crew is back for the issue, but Pete Woods is replaced by Jesus Moreno on art chores, which kind of plays out well here. Okay, I want you to make sure you're sitting down. I want you to buckle your seatbelts, because we are about to get a lot of revelations dropped on us. Action Comics 899 opens with Lex and Lois in space, standing before the last of the black energy spheres, right on the cusp of completing his quest, when a familiar voice calls behind him. Brainiac, in physical form. Brainiac reveals that Lex has been working for him the whole time. After all, Lois was built from Brainiac technology, giving him the means to monitor and influence Lex's decisions. Nanites were placed in Luthor's brain by way of Lois applying the concealer back in issue 890 that when Lex was hung upside down, planted the dream of the spheres into Lex's mind, the idea of changing the spheres' energy rather than studying the spheres for years. But of course, Lex being Lex, he saw this coming. After all, what did a robot need with concealer? And when, and when Vandal Savage split Lois, 
Lex saw that her biocircuitry was growing and changing. Lex doesn't even need Lois to change the sphere energy. He secretly has a scanning device within his own armor. So Lex and Brainiac go tit for tat. One will produce a weapon, the other a counter weapon. And finally, tiring of the fight, Lex simply snaps Brainiac's neck, breaking him out of the fight, pun intended. With that out of the way, Lex changes the remaining black sphere energies, which brings all of the spheres together, and they form a giant gateway, bringing an enormous entity through. And Mr. Mind arrives as he has been working for this entity. See, it's all coming together. It's a Kryptonian from the within the Phantom Zone. And the being is hurt by negative emotions, which grew even more intense through Blackest Night. So the being is going to end the negative emotions by putting an end to all life. Seems logical. Lex makes some final deduction that the being tried to dissuade Lex from bringing Lois because she has Kryptonian technology within her. And Lex lets the nanites within Lois infect him, allowing him to become, well, acquainted with the Kryptonian technology. So he comes to the being on a mental dimension, and after grappling with the creature, going will to will, Lex opens his eyes in space, now merged with the creature. And Lex ends the issue by remembering his encounter with death, when he wondered if there was judgment, if there was a god. And with this power and his will, Lex declares, there is now. Whew, let's take a breath. Because we just had a ton of bricks dropped on us on this issue. It's all coming together. And this moves so fast. So hold. Breathe. Release. Okay. Now, I love tightly written stories. And in the realm of science fiction... Doctor Who is well known for tying a ton of stuff together. Bringing a Doctor Who writer on board brought us that. Now, admittedly, the Brainiac connection was quietly telegraphed in issue 890, but it was done subtly and not picked up until now. We call that Chekhov's gun. A gun is introduced in Act 1, put in a drawer, and not seen or spoken about until the third act where it becomes extremely relevant. The concealer was a bit of a shock. Uh, given Even in rereading this years later, I had completely forgotten about that detail. And the whole fight between Lex and Brainiac was pretty funny right until Lex snapped his neck, and then stuff just got real. Now, of course, one of the shocking moments during New Krypton was Brainiac doing the same thing to Lex, who turned out to be, wait for it, a robot. Not only does it tie the elements of the story together, but moments in recent stories like New Krypton and Blackest Night, which would throw off a new reader, but somebody who's been reading uh, consistently, like I had been, would be like, oh, I see what you did there. Because yes, the story stemmed out of Blackest Night, but it could have really, it could have been easy to disregard a lot of that and just do a self-contained Lex Luthor story and maybe that's where they should have gone. But I think we get a more organic story fitting in with the status quo a bit more naturally. And there was the moment that gave me butterflies, Luthor activating the spheres, calling them up. It was a real feeling of it's all led up to this. And on page 11, we see the gateway forming, and then the giant hand coming through. All I can say is, oh, wow. And on page 12, that awe isn't lessened by the full-page splash of the creature. Because a lot of times, you know, the revelation isn't as cool as the way it's revealed. But when you see Lois and Lex shown extremely tiny in the lower right-hand corner, it tends to make you, you know, swallow a little bit hard. And you know, the game just got bigger. We went from minor league farm team to the World Series in two pages. And Mr. Mind, he's back, and it makes sense. Mr. Mind swallowed the Phantom Zone. So of course this being will have some sort of connection, some sort of means of communication with that. And we see that we are tying this back as far as 52, the first post-Infinite Crisis story, at least chronologically. And then Lex gets infected by the Nanites. By ripping off Lois's face, and we simply see her floating into space like she is dead. I distinctly remember reading this issue, because it was right after my wife and I had moved. It was the f one of the first new comics read in our new place, and I read it with my jaw open. Especially when we get to the end, with that all-powerful Lex. Because this ended on a level that comics should aspire to. I could not wait until the next issue, because of where this issue ended, and the fact that it was the big 900th issue. 
And now we have everything laid out on the table. We are at the climax, and I am ready to jump right into Action Comics number 900. Now, Action Comics 900 was a huge deal. After all, it had a historic numbering, it was the conclusion to this story, and it marked the return of Superman to the book that launched him. When it went on sale on April 27, 2011, it came under fire very quickly for a backup feature in which Superman renounced his American citizenship. But it was hard to deny the excitement fans felt when this came out with four, count them four, variant covers. After all, Superman had been absent from Action Comics since 2009, literally two years. We saw Nightwing and Flameberg take over the book during the new Krypton and then the back Black Ring for nearly a year. The Man of Steel was back. The grounded storyline was heading towards its conclusion. And this was wrapping up and the Reign of Doomsday was heating up. It felt like the Superman books were finally coming to a place where we could get back to business as usual for the first time in practically three years since the beginning of New Krypton. But what we didn't know was that we were about to see the end of this iteration of Superman. And we didn't have the knowledge that this would be the last Lex Luthor story ever. So before I jump into this bad boy, I want to touch on Reign of the Doomsday a bit, since we do get a bit of that in the issue. I, To put a point on it, this story was going through the other Superman-related books, except Superman. Basically, Doomsday would show up, he would snatch Superboy, and Supergirl, the Eradicator, Steel, and the Cyborg Superman. That was what had happened up to this point, and they ended up on a ship. Now, our Black Ring finale was written by Paul Cornell, as usual. But we had art by Pete Woods, Jesus Marino, Dan Jurgens, Norman Rapmond, Rags Morales, Adrian Sayaf, Jamal Eigel, Jonathan Sabal, and Gary Frank. That is a bevy of artists. And we had covers by David Finch, Adam Hughes, Alex Ross, and Rodolfo Migliari. This final installment was 51 pages with no ads, the longest installment of the series. And we open with Superman returning to Metropolis after his long absence. He's seeking out Doomsday, who has beaten Steel and taken him. After assuring everybody he has it on under control, Superman starts tracking Steel, who is in space with the other super people within a ship, and Doomsday is messing them up big time. But before Superman gets too far with that search, he gets zapped across the universe to come face-to-face -face with Lex in his new deity form. Superman quickly puts together that Lex is infused with Phantom Zone energy and spots the gateway to the Phantom Zone where Christopher Kent went at the end of Last Sun and sealed off the gateway. Lex explains his new form, that the being was the only one of its kind, evolving into this thing within the Phantom Zone, and now Lex has merged with it. Superman is shown human pain, specifically Lois Lane's emotions on the day he died, and Superman tells Luthor, I know loss. Luthor takes Superman on a tour of those losses. He sees Jor-El and Lara as they send him away. He relives losing Chris Kent, the destruction of New Krypton, and the more recent loss of Jonathan Kent. This is where Lex clues in that Superman is really Clark Kent. And yet, Superman doesn't break which enrages Lex. Why can't he, with his infinite power, break the Man of Steel? Thanks to the connection to the Zone Child, Lois, or Mr. Mind controlling Lois to be accurate, explains to Lex that the creature is still alive within him, and it is fighting him. It's keeping the full infinite power away from Lex. So Lex fights the creature internally, finally winning. By defeating and effectively destroying the creature, Lex taps into its full power which spreads pure bliss throughout the universe. Death feels it on an Austrian ski slope. Vandal Savage finds his pure happiness per the prophecy. The Red Lanterns feel it. Thanagarians, Larflees, Deathstroke, Gorilla Grodd, Brainiac repairing himself on his ship, and even Batman feels a moment of pure, unfiltered bliss. Superman tells Lex that he can use this power to achieve what he has always wanted to be the savior of humanity, of the universe even. And Mr. Mind tells Lex that to keep the infinite power, he can never do anything negative, only positive. The creature made sure of that when it, when it was destroyed. So that means he can't use the power to destroy Superman. So on the table, Lex can do anything, as long as his worst enemy still lives and is blissfully happy. Lex can't live with that. 
and that means the infinite power left him as soon as he made that decision, also severing the connection to Mr. Mind. Superman realizes that, now, the harder Lex tries to destroy Superman, the more power he loses. So he provokes Lex so that he blasts Superman over and over again until finally, the energy is spent. And Lex reverts to his human form. The bliss fades from the universe and in Arkham, the Joker laughs because Lex just played the ultimate joke on the universe, giving it bliss and then snatching it right away. Powerless and defeated, Lex reminds Superman that his comrades are all in danger before floating backward into one of the black spheres, disappearing within it before the spheres themselves vanish. Superman's nemesis fades away for the last time. Lois Robot still lives and tells Superman that she wants to make her own way, with her own face, since Lex ripped, you know, her Lois face off. And with Lex defeated, Superman takes Lex's ship and goes to find his super family who, had, who are still aboard the Doomsday ship, but that is a story for another time. Can I just say that this issue starts perfectly? With the first three pages, we get Superman returning to Metropolis and making the statement, I'm back and I will win this. I'm already on board. Superman walks in and owns this story, and the story has been a Lex Luthor story for many, many issues. And as an added event, we get to see the convergence of the Black Ring story with the reign of Doomsday, and both collide in an interesting way. Now, since I want to come back to the Reign of Doomsday sometime down the road, I'm going to play down those elements of the issue and talk about those at another time. But we move to a scene where Superman stands in front of Lex in his new form and sees the Phantom Zone portal. His first and foremost thought is of Christopher. I never got to the conclusion of Last Son on this show. Uh, but to summarize Last Son, to get all the Phantom Zone criminals, including Zod back into the basically put the genie back in the bottle chris had to return to the zone and the portal was sealed off and that's where superman's heart is even staring down this mortal enemy in an ultra powerful form his mind is on chris the closest thing he has to a son i always wish that chris had stuck around to be honest i think he would have livened up the status quo in ways that new krypton didn't i mean after all close uh Lois. Lois and Clark had been married for nearly a decade when Last Son was being published, so adding a kid would have been a logical next step and provided a lot of great story ideas. We saw a lot of that play out in uh, Camelot Falls with the pig iron watch with the red sun energy. I thought that was great, but alas, that's a tangent topic. Returning to Superman's death was a touching scene. It made more so upon this reread. Um, the 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 recent coverage of From Crisis to Crisis made that, made the re-experience of it a little bit more poignant than when I read this issue the first time. Because as I record this, it has been officially 20 years since Superman's 75th, 75th issue hit stands. So now the context of that and this story are gone with the New 52. That's not a slam on the New 52, by the way. But to revisit this, especially so soon after that coverage, really... Um, just kind of punched me in the face. And my, while I may get a wistful feeling reading through this and a bit of a pang of loss for this continuity, I really do enjoy the new material. And we get a Superman's darkest moments, including watching through his eyes as his birth parents say their goodbyes to him. And here at the end, we go back to the beginning, as well as a stop off in Last Son, which really stings under Cornell's pen. And then the death of Jonathan Kent, something that was... Kind of a recent addition to the continuity. One of the things that bothered me about Jonathan's death this time was the very small amount of time that Clark was able to mourn. Because right after his dad's death, we had a new Krypton extravaganza, and his mourning period really got cut short. But here Cornell digs the knife in and twists it, and we get Gary Frank revisiting the scene, so it actually feels like we stepped back into that issue for just a moment. But the 800-pound gorilla in the room is going to be in the choice that Lex makes. He defeats the creature. He has all of its powers, giving the universe a moment of bliss and peace, fulfilling Vandal Savage's prophecy as well as deaths. We have this great moment with everyone's reaction to the bliss. We revisit the other villains who have been a part of our story, except Secret Six, which is a bit of a disappointment. And we get a great panel of Grodd reacting by asking, Am, am I ill? All in all, Lex does it. 
He achieves his goal to be the Savior. And yet, yet he gives it up. And he gives it up why? I mean, just wait. Can you hear that dead horse being beaten? He gives it up because of his pride. In almost every discussion of Lex Luthor, I speak of his pride as the source of his power and alternately as his weakness. He cannot, with his pride, accept that to bring ultimate, true, lasting peace to the entire universe, Superman must live and share that happiness. So, he loses his power completely and fades away. It's tragic, and Mr. Mind even points out the tragedy. Yet I don't feel that the Black Ring was a wasted trip. It was a fun ride, it took Luthor to a galactic scale, and as a final word on the character, it accomplishes a lot. I just wish... I wish we had known that this was goodbye. This version of Lex Luthor had by this time been around for 25 years since Man of Steel, and sure, we saw the cosmetic realigning with Infinite Crisis, but at its core, he was the same. And our last moments with him are truly sad when we're looking at it in the actual context. His last words, so small now, so unhappy, had it all. His last moments floating in space, powerless, barely regaining his memories and clarity, and then floating quietly into the black sphere, the very things he has sought through the last twelve issues. It began in Metropolis with a frantic hostage situation on a boat, and a quarter of a century later it ends quietly in the void of space, gently floating out of Superman's life. And so we come to the end of the Black Ring. Now, though rumors were floating around that Flashpoint would reboot the DC Universe, we wouldn't find out for almost a month after this issue hit. And as I said, it got more attention for a backup feature than this story. However, this issue ends with the reign of Doomsday beginning, which would be the final Superman story playing out across the next four issues. Action Comics 904 would be released on August 24th, 2011, chronologically the last in-continuity Superman published before the reboot. This 900th issue would wrap up the Superman vs. Luthor rivalry and take us on our last adventure with this Man of Steel. I can't help but feel a bit choked up. Um, As somebody who was there when the post-crisis era began, this issue is a bittersweet read, as is the, the entire Black Ring saga. When I began this coverage, I mentioned that this was the strongest Superman-related title on shelves, and I was really only half in, half out with Grounded. So this was my last run with the core Superman stories. Now, revisiting this has been a great pleasure and a privilege, and I thank you for joining me. Uh, The entire saga is collected in two volumes, The Black Ring Volume 1 and Volume 2, in hard and soft cover formats. And as usual, I am going to take a break, kind of collect myself, and when we come back, we will look at this week's episode of Superman the Animated Series. Ready to form Voltron! This is a job for Superman. Power Rangers! Right away, Michael. Autobots, transform! By the power of Grayskull! For the honor of Grayskull! Hello. I'm the Doctor. Charlie's GeekCast, coming January 1st, 2013, to www.charliesgeekcast.com. And coming back to wrap up this episode with our Superman the Animated Series coverage with the episode entitled Mixus Pitilated. 
guess who the villain is. It was written by Paul Dini, directed by Dan Reba, and the episode aired on September 20th, 1997. Joining this episode are the voices of Gilbert Gottfried as Mixus Pitalik, Frank Welker as the Creatures, and Sandra Bernhardt as Mixus Pitalik's wife, whose name I can't pronounce. On a Metropolis morning, Superman flies overhead and hears a grating voice call out for somebody named McGurk. In the streets below, a little man in a purple suit and derby causes a lot of trouble in traffic walking in the street and paying no mind to the cars, even when one almost hits him. Superman stops the car, but is surprised when the little man floats away as bubbles. Later, at the Daily Planet, Jimmy Olsen laughs at a newspaper comic strip which Clark takes a look at. The little man from earlier is the star of the strip, which lists his name as Mixus Pitalik, and when Clark mispronounces the name, the little guy steps out of the newspaper and corrects his pronunciation, and then vanishes. Later still, as Clark and Lois cover the unveiling of an exhibit featuring Rodan's The Thinker, Mixus Pitalik sh- Wow, I can't even pronounce it, can I? Mixus Pitalik shows up, screaming out for McGurk again. The statue itself comes to life and responds to the name, and then starts to walk off with Mixus Pitalik, but Clark switches to Superman and stops the duo. When the statue punches the Man of Steel, Superman responds in kind, shattering the statue to pieces, only to find that he is now standing back in front of the museum crowd with no sign of the little man and a broken priceless piece of art to answer for. Awkward. So, Superman seeks advice from Ma and Pa Kent, who are turned into chickens, then Mixus Pitalik appears and changes them into ducks before they become ghoulish creatures. Superman demands that Mixus Pitalik change them back, and Mixie puts the older Kents into an American Gothic-style portrait while he and Superman have a talk. Mixie says that he is an imp from the fifth dimension, and he has been tormenting humans for centuries. But Superman presents a true, worthy challenge. So he'll go on torturing Superman until the Man of Tomorrow can trick him into saying his name backwards. If Superman could do that, he'll go back to his fifth dimension for 90 days. So, Superman immediately tricks Mixus Pitalik into saying his name backwards, and the imp disappears. Three months later, Clark is using his heat vision to shave and prepares for his day when Mixus Pitalik appears in his bathroom mirror. Superman once again easily tricks him into saying his name backwards. Another three months later, Clark is printing some copy for an article when Mixus Pitalik appears again. Superman says that he will get him as soon as he proofreads the article. When Mixie decides to speed things along and proofread it himself, he inadvertently spells his name backward in the process, sending him back home again. Back in the fifth dimension, Mixus Pitalik complains to his vivacious redhead of a wife about Superman beating him, ignoring his wife's new outfit. His wife tells Mixie that maybe he should just destroy Superman. So Mixus Pitalik spends quite a great deal of time building a big bad suit of armor, all the while completely ignoring his wife's advances. When the 90 days is up and the suit is ready, Mixie heads back to our dimension only to return in 5 seconds. Another 90 days passes, and a penguin walks down the aisle of the Daily Planet, right before Lois turns into a horse, and, well, the entire planet staff changes it to different animals. As Mixus Pitalik feeds Lois a carrot, he changes the rules. Now Superman must make him say his name twice in a row. Superman simply says, I quit, and walks out even as Mixus Pitalik begs him to stay, even as Mixie threatens to tell the world his secret identity. Superman just shrugs that off and goes flying, engaging in an aerial dogfight with Mixus Pitalik, who changes to a kryptonite missile and chases Superman. Mixie brings Superman down on top of the Daily Planet, and he jumps up and down, having won, but Superman points out that Mixus Pitalik has Sky written his name in the sky, and Mixus Pitalik disappears forever. Fully defeated. Everything goes back to normal in Superman's world, while Mixus Pitalik rages in the fifth dimension, but his mood is improved when his wife gives him a big kiss. Maybe being stuck in the fifth dimension isn't so bad after all. You know, the thing that stands out in a very, very big way about this episode is that it felt like a Looney Tunes cartoon. I guess more accurate, like an Animaniacs or Tiny Tunes episode. Let me say that is definitely a compliment. I'm a big fan of those shows. With a character like Mixus Pitalik, it has to be funny. And the first act, when we are introduced to Mixus Pitalik, is right out of the character's first appearance, along with the scene with the statue. Mixie's design comes from his original first appearance as well, and it fits the animation style to a T. 
The episode is full of laughs, and the casting of Gilbert Gottfried was perfect. Just absolutely perfect. I love that the Kent family cat has a white streak down its back, a reference to Supergirl's cat Streaky. I also laughed out loud at Jonathan and Martha pecking at the ground in their human forms before being changed outright into chickens. And American Gothic. Um, okay, maybe that part was a little too on the nose for the Kents, but not too devastating for me. Though the first time Mixie reappears, Clark is shaving with the mirror in the heat vision trick. Now in the comics, he used a piece of the ship. I can't buy the fact that he's using a regular mirror, because that would melt. But I'm overthinking things, that's why I'm doing a podcast. My favorite appearance is when Mixie appears at the Daily Planet and Clark uses the proofreading trick. I want you to bear in mind that the document was printing out before Mixie's Pidalic appeared. And then we see Mix's wife. Once again, I can't say her name, but it begins with the letter G. Good luck with that. Um, but she's pure, pure Jessica Rabbit. Just a redheaded bombshell. And Mixie making his ill-fated battle suit was a sequence that was pure Wiley Coyote. Just with a sex pot added in. Pretty much changing every fantasy in and out that you can imagine. We have a swimsuit, Catholic schoolgirl. Every fanboy fantasy is representative. It's classic. I mean, it really is. It's a classic long setup for the punchline. That entire sequence was with his wife counting down the seconds and perfectly deadpan and completely hilarious is the Daily Planet scene in which the penguin goes waddling down the aisle. And Clark simply says, yep, that's a penguin. This is easily, just hands down easily, one of my favorite episodes of the show. And it all comes down to two things. One, the humor. And two, the fact that Superman was prepared for every encounter. It's a great Silver Age Superman episode, and when the Superman episode of Brave and the Bold appeared, it owed a lot of its humor to this. It's an episode that can laugh at itself and make it a successful part of the story to boot. And with that, we come to the end of this episode. Um, I am J. David Weeder. I do want to say next week, episode 50, Superman for All Seasons, something I am extremely excited to talk about. So I look forward to seeing you here in one week. Until then... Keep on fighting the never-ending battle. This has been Superman Forever Radio, a NatWorld production. You can find the show on iTunes with backlogs of episodes, where you can also leave a review. The show finds its home at supermanforever.com, and he's a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. You can friend the show on Facebook at, at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio, and email the show at mail at supermanforever.com. David can be found on Twitter at twitter.com slash superdaveweeder. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, are all properties of Warner Brothers Entertainment and DC Entertainment. All music and sound clips used on the show are copyright their respective owners and no infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. <laughs>